My name is Eric Weinkoop, and I'm the Director of Culinary Instruction and uh, also one of your chef instructors in the course in the courses. I want to thank you very much for joining me today. You know, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into uh, today's questions. Uh, so to begin, uh, from Debbie, our professional chef course did not cover how to calculate the cost of making and selling food. Uh, could you address this? And what additional studies would you recommend to be a private chef or instructor? Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so we've got uh, some uh, some big questions here, and let me you know first say that uh, you know when we think about doing food uh, as a business, uh, it is important to understand the cost, right? The, the expense of that food to you, right? As the business operator. And we call that food cost. Now, in addition to that, we would also track fundamentally labor cost as well as overhead expenses. So those three broad categories, um, overhead expenses uh, and labor cost are often very easy to see I and mean, relatively speaking uh, easy to understand but it is the labor uh, excuse me it's, it's food cost that gets to be a little more nuanced and um, you know I'll uh, take a couple of minutes here to put that into some context okay um, now when we think about a dish right that we're serving to somebody or whatever that finished food item is. It could be a slice of cake. Uh, it could be a piece of lasagna. It could be a, a full plate, you know, with three or four components on it. Um, we have uh, a recipe cost. Uh, in other words, the cost of the food that goes on the plate that we need to be aware of. Uh, there is uh, then the individual ingredient costs. Uh, that go into that recipe. So ultimately, uh, we would break down the cost of that plate to its individual uh, recipe components, uh, you know, based upon the quantities that are used for that uh, particular portion. Okay, and uh, the, the the process to do that uh, gets a, a little more, uh, you know, in depth and, and nuanced and drawn out in terms of explanation. This is. Um, uh, a, a nuanced and a bit of a tedious process, at least in the beginning, as you first establish your menu with your recipes and the particular ingredients uh, that are involved. Um, you know, once you do that, in other words, once you cost out all of those ingredients, uh, then, uh, you know, you've got your, your foundation for, for um, understanding uh, that money snapshot of your business, okay? Um, I will also, you know, in terms of providing some context here, I'll, I will also mention that many folks that start business, food businesses don't do this step. And uh, it, the basic reason for that is, it, in my experience, is that, you know, many of uh, people that, in, it, that aspire to open a business, they love to cook. And it's that creative endeavor that they focus on. And the business side can be a challenge. And so consequently, they choose to ignore uh, some of those business functions, business aspects uh, of their bigger enterprise, uh, only to their detriment sooner or later. 
Okay, and you know, throughout my experience uh, consulting uh, with restaurants uh, over the years, I have come across so many examples uh, of folks that had no idea how much their food cost was, uh, and uh, you know they were, uh, you know, as we might say, you know, just bleeding money uh, because uh, food was being pilfered uh, or food was being uh, uh, you know, mishandled, and and uh, there was a high rate of spoilage, for example, and so things were going into the garbage can, but the 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 operator of the business simply didn't know what was going on because that that area of the business wasn't tracked. And so I, uh, I think it's very important uh, that you spend the time to set up properly uh, that aspect of your business and to monitor it and understand that from time to time, you'll need to update the data, right? The, the initial information that you compiled, uh, for example, uh, seasonally when prices change or if you change the portion size of a dish, okay? Uh, you'll need to recalculate the food cost on that particular serving. Uh, and so that's a little bit of context. And, um, uh, you know, beyond, uh, you know, this brief introduction and the archived live event, uh, there's certainly information online. And I would, I would encourage you to uh, take a look at that. Uh, there are books. Um, usually in the realm uh, of, uh, you know, hospitality management uh, academic programs. Uh, these, in my experience, are textbooks uh, that are available uh, that would cover this topic area as well. All right. All the best to you. Um, and okay, yeah, let me actually address this uh, other part to your question, and that is, um, you know, becoming a, a culinary instructor. So this is going to be a, a separate sort of a, a question, uh, certainly with some overlap, but a separate question in my mind. And um, uh, a chef instructor ideally will have a very broad foundation uh, of experience around food. And uh, that's going to cover uh, regional cuisine, um, you know, different uh, categories on the menu, you know, whether it's uh, starters or um, salads of some sort, main dishes, uh, desserts, um, you know, some familiarity with uh, uh, the basics of baking, uh, I think are going to be a, a great idea in terms of establishing a foundation. And then, uh, you know, also having a professional cooking experience and, um, you know, understanding that context of different types of food service establishments, uh, large volume, smaller uh, scale operations, um, you know, it could be a, a coffee shop, it could be a food cart. Uh, having experience in all of these different areas uh, certainly goes a long way to inform the different questions and scenarios that come up within the very broad area of culinary instruction. And uh, so, you know, I, you know, at least in my experience, that takes a while uh, as you travel domestically, you travel internationally, you do a lot of cooking yourself, uh, you work with, um, uh, in my experience, in a way, I like to work with home cooks uh, as well as professionals in the industry uh, because there's a lot to learn from all these people around the world. And, um, uh, you know, over time, uh, you know, you couple this with lots of reading, lots of studies. Um, I also have a background in food anthropology, and so you start to bring in history and politics and migration and uh, religion and 
you know, environmental factors that influence food. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, I think uh, all valuable information within the, the realm of culinary instruction. Okay. And uh, so that's uh, a place to start. Thanks. All right. Uh, let's see. Next up. Uh, when a recipe calls for an onion, which do you choose, a, a white or yellow, and why? Um, you know, there's, there certainly are some flavored nuances uh, between onions, uh, but I find, you know, whether it's bitterness uh, or less bitterness or strong oniony flavor or, you know, less strong oniony flavor. Um, and, but I, I find that some of those things will vary uh, depending on the time of the year. Uh, as well as the place of origin uh, of that food product. Uh, you know, onions, just like, uh, you know, any other produce item that we work with, uh, it's, a, it's, a it's a natural and variable product. And so when it comes to the examples that you presented here, white and yellow, um, you know, oftentimes it doesn't matter to me. Um, and other times it does relative to, let's say, uh, tradition, the traditional context of a uh, of a recipe of a, of a dish that I'm making. Um, and uh, I will also con consider cost, uh, whether it's at home or in a business setting. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately do a taste test yourself. Um, and part of this will depend upon how you will use that ingredient, in this case, onions. Uh, you know, so for example, if you are going to saute the onion um, or caramelize onions, uh, you know, that, that, transformative process with the application of heat will draw out uh, an overwhelming uh, sweet profile. Um, and so bitterness will go away for the most part, whether it's a white onion or a yellow onion, in which case it, it really doesn't matter which one you start with. Okay. Um, so again, you know, think about these different factors, cost, uh, do some tasting of your own. Think about how you will use the onion, how it's being processed, uh, not just through knife cuts, but also through the cooking that you do. Um, and then try it, uh, you know, different uh, recipe uh, uh, versions, okay, with different onions and see how you like it. And uh, think about your audience as well. Uh, that's going to be an important consideration, I think, uh, as I choose ingredients uh, in a particular dish. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up uh, from Laura. Welcome, Laura. Uh, among the five basic tastes, are there some that uh, particularly go well together and some that you should avoid matching uh, in order to have a balanced dish? And uh, can you mention one or two examples of dishes that represent balanced versus imbalanced? Um, you know, let's talk uh, sort of basically and broadly about this, Laura. Um, the on, on one hand, the desirability to have um, different tastes represented in one dish uh, is somewhat culturally mitigated. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, in uh, again, this is very broadly speaking here, but uh, in um, a, a lot of North American uh, cooking, um, you know, I might see a, a couple uh, of tastes that are presented. And um, a lot of it has to do with mouthfeel as well, which is different, but but um, I think uh, simultaneously important to consider, okay? But that's a little aside. Um, 
back to the topic of, of taste here, as we compare, let's say, uh, the common approach to North American cooking with, say, uh, the, the cooking ideals or the principles that I've come across in, say, Thailand, um, I see, uh, you know, four or five or more of these tastes uh, represented uh, in a dish and certainly across a meal, uh, and, and that being the ideal in order to stimulate these different aspects of, uh, of, of the internal body according to those uh, local practices, okay, and perspectives on health. Okay, um, so are there you know particular tastes that uh, go well together or that you should avoid matching? Uh, not necessarily. I think it really depends on the context. Um, you know, so you know whether it's bitter and and uh, sweet or or salty and and bitter, um, all of these can go well together. Uh, and I think what what uh, bridges the gaps, so to speak, between these different tastes or sort of um, brings this, this tapestry of tastes together are going to be the accompanying flavors uh, of the ingredients uh, and the aromas that come along with those, uh, the, the, those flavor uh, um, uh, components, uh, as well as the texture uh, that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. So whether it's uh, you know, crunchy or something soft, um, temperature makes a difference as well. Okay. And um, so, you know, this idea of balancing a dish um, can become somewhat complex, right, as you drill down deeper and deeper. But, uh, you know, take it one step at a time and practice. And I recommend uh, exploring global cuisines. Uh, that's often where we're going to find these different uh, aspects of taste um, emphasized in one direction or another. Okay. So I mentioned Thai cuisine, but uh, take on, uh, take on any cuisine. Uh, it might be Indian cuisine. You know, another favorite of mine is Mexican cuisine. And uh, just note, you know, across uh, a sampling of dishes, a, a, a sample menu, whether you're making it at home or whether you're eating out in a restaurant, um, what tastes are represented? which ones are prominent, which ones are secondary, and then, you know, uh, sort of taste critically, think critically about um, how those are bridged, how those, those gaps are filled with the accompanying flavors and aromas and textures and temperatures as well. Okay. Um, and um, can I give a couple of examples of dishes uh, offhand? You know, I, I don't know offhand. Um, I think certainly if I sat around for a few minutes, I could come up with some examples. But um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, try. Uh, okay, here's a couple, couple examples. Try a uh, a fresh salsa. Uh, you know, a, um, salsa fresca, salsa cruda, something like that, uh, as well as something that's cooked, a cooked salsa. Um, you made know, based on dried chilies. Uh, you know, onions, garlic, um, you know, blended. Um, and uh, start to compare the flavors that come through, understanding that you can control some of what comes through based upon the extent of uh, um, uh, charring of, of the chilies or onions, you know, how much bitterness might come through, for example, okay? Uh, and then also the types of chilies that you might choose uh, to go into that dried chili salsa example. Some have more sweetness, uh, some have more earthiness, uh, for example. 
Okay. Uh, but that's not so important as just comparing the finished products. All right. Have fun. All right. Next up. And another one from Laura. Uh, when using potatoes as an ingredient for your preparations, how do you choose among the varieties? Uh, that is, what characteristics make each of the classic varieties, yellow, white, red, sweet, uh, more suitable for a dish rather than another? Um, yes. Yeah, so, you know, at a, at a foundational level, okay, in this culinary context, we talk about mealy potatoes and waxy potatoes, just two broad categories. And mealy potatoes... Uh, are those that are uh, relatively higher in starch content, relatively lower in sugar content, and have a mealy texture once cooked, such as a russet potato. That's going to be a classic example, okay? And uh, then in the other camp, uh, will the, the waxy um, uh, potato camp, uh, are those that are relatively higher in uh, sugars, they tend to have these firmer textures once cooked. And so that's where we find um, red potatoes and Yukon Golds uh, as a couple of examples, okay? And in terms of application, uh, waxy potatoes, um, again, there's a, a lot of crossover and ultimately you can do whatever you want. But as a starting point, uh, the general recommendation is to use waxy uh, potatoes, those firm when cooked potatoes uh, in preparations uh, where they might be mixed and tossed, uh, but the shape that cut uh, is, uh, you, want, you want to preserve it. So a potato salad, for example, uh, is one where uh, more often than not, I would choose a waxy potato. Okay, now for a mealy potato, because of its relatively lower sugar content, uh, think about potatoes where uh, you don't want excessive browning, such as French fries. Uh, so the, the typical French fry uh, is made from a russet potato or some other type of mealy potato. Okay. Uh, now, having said that, of course, we see sweet potato fries and, and uh, so many exceptions to this. Okay. So this is where uh, you get to do whatever you want. Uh, you know, I use sweet potatoes, uh, you know, in that context, as well as in, in uh, potato salads. Uh, but as a, as a general starting point, think about the texture of the potato when cooked. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, uh, have some fun with it. Okay. Thank you. All right. And the next question, uh, are you able to recommend a good book or course on beautifully plating foods? Thank you so much. Uh, Tamara, let's uh, talk about this. Um, so it, it, I'm going to, first of all, direct you to the interwebs, okay, uh, and also your local library. Uh, when it comes to uh, plate presentation, um, in our pro courses, we, we touch upon some uh, introductory information. Um, but uh, um, in, in terms of a more uh, in-depth dive into the topic of plate presentation, do take a look at information online and uh, you know, do a search on Amazon for books. I always recommend going to your local library. Uh, so you, you, know, you, you don't need to spend money initially unless you find something or until you find something that you, you want uh, in your personal library. 
Okay. But when it comes to, uh, you know, food prep uh, presentation, uh, think about some different categories. Okay. So, uh, you know, for example, if we're talking about individual plates uh, compared to platters or buffet presentations, there will be some different rules or guidelines. Um, you know, think about whether it's a savory dish that you're interested in. Uh, or a sweet, right? I, uh, that is to say a dessert preparation that you want to focus on. Uh, again, some of the, the guidelines or boundaries will differ. Uh, also consider whether you're interested in uh, uh, a, a North American uh, approach uh, as one approach to plating uh, in its uh, uh, sort of bounded context versus some other global uh, approach because once again the the guidelines or the boundaries will be different uh, based upon the cultural context around that that cuisine. Okay, so as you you know as you look for books, just think about what area interests you. Okay, and then uh, um, you know, certainly there are going to be some basic guidelines to follow, whether it's uh, the introduction of height that third dimension on a plate, which is very interesting, uh, or color contrast, which can be brought in through main components or through a garnish. Uh, very often the items that we cook on a savory plate tend to have sort of brown tones to them. And so the addition of uh, just one or two garnishes at the end of the plating uh, can change things quite a bit. The knife cuts that you choose uh, are part of the plate presentation. Uh, and not to mention the arrangement, uh, the uh, a, a visual line that is followed uh, on the plate. Uh, and then another thing to keep in mind, generally speaking, is not to overcrowd the plate. And uh, we, we like to, to maintain some space where we can actually see the plate. And that's called negative space. Okay. And uh, that just uh, you know, maintains a lighter look uh, overall. Okay. So just some things to keep in mind to start with. Um, and then the other thing is to look at photographs, uh, see what other people are doing, uh, you know, relative to styles of plating. Uh, there are many, many styles of plating, even within uh, a North American context. Okay. And, uh, and have some fun with it. All right. As you explore these areas that are of interest to you. Thank you. All right. And the next question. Uh, I'm interested in transitioning to a plant-based diet. What would be your most beneficial advice uh, you could give me? Uh, you know, I would say take it at your own pace, okay? Uh, you know, over the years, I've worked with many, many thousands of students uh, that are making a transition in one direction or another. And, um, you know, I see a, a fair number of people that uh, are uh, very gung-ho and, uh, you know, make these uh, very abrupt changes uh, in their lifestyle. And for some people, that can be difficult to maintain uh, without allowing yourself uh, a chance to transition uh, into this newness. And that transition means a lot of different things, right? It could mean uh, how to use a knife. Uh, it could mean, you know, how to... Uh, apply and control the various dry heat cooking methods. Uh, or it could be allowing your body and brain 
the time to adjust to a low salt or no salt cooking, right? The whole same thing holds true with added fat or sugars, okay? And, you know, some of these um, uh, adjustments with our body and brain, for example, uh, can take a month or two or more. And so uh, have patience with the process. Uh, take it at your pace. Um, establish a long-term goal, right? That, uh, that North Star, so to speak, uh, in order to keep you on track on those days when you feel like stepping off the tracks, all right? And, uh, you know, if, if you need to take a little detour to experience a little, uh, um, you know, uh, sweet tooth satisfaction, whatever the case might be, you know, don't be hard on yourself. Get back on track and uh, follow your path. Um, but again, you know, it, give yourself time to adjust. Uh, when it comes to learning how to use a knife efficiently and effectively, um, there's discomfort involved. Uh, sometimes we have aches and pains through our shoulder, uh, our neck, our, our hips, uh, as our body gets used to uh, a new activity. Uh, you know, sometimes we, uh, uh, where the, our, our hand rests on top of the, the knife, on the spine of the knife, uh, the skin gets worn off right in here. And it takes time to develop a callus. It could be, you know, a, a couple, three weeks. And through that process, there's redness, there's blistering, there's skin that sloughs off, and it can be downright painful uh, for a period of time. But we, we push through that in order to get to a better place. Um, and so these, this is what I mean by be patient and uh, take the transition at your own pace, uh, knowing that um, uh, you've got some time. Okay, this is for you. All right, thank you. All right, uh, next question. Uh, for no oil cooking, which type of pans is recommended or best suited? Stainless steel, nonstick, uh, cast iron, enamel. Uh, okay, so um, if we're talking about some uh, high heat cooking, uh, you know, in the no oil context, you know, for example, using the, uh, the you know, water mercury ball test, um, that we show in our courses, then, uh, you know, I would recommend staying away from uh, a nonstick pan, at least the ones that uh, I'm familiar with that have a coating on the inside, because uh, you can uh, start to approach uh, that temperature or that temperature range where uh, the nonstick coating may be damaged, okay? Uh, in which case, uh, you know, try out stainless steel, uh, which is very uh, hardy to high temperatures. Um, cast iron enamel can also be used, um, but probably not at, at as high a temperature as you, you could use with stainless steel. Okay, now I say could use uh, because you may not even need to go to an extremely high temperature, you know, with uh, stainless steel. Okay, there's going to be some uh, experimentation on your part that will be necessary. Okay, um, and now relative to the the that water ball test, right, or the mercury ball test, um, when uh, uh, when we show that we use a stainless steel pan, um, the surface of a stainless steel pan is is tight and it's smooth. And so that water ball is formed very nicely, 
to resemble a ball of mercury, hence the name. Now, as we switch to different types of pans, whether it's a stain, uh, um, you know, in, uh, excuse me, a cast iron of any sort, uh, then the, the water ball doesn't look the same, okay? And so we need to practice uh, to understand the characteristics of the pan, okay? Because we don't, we don't have other videos uh, that cover uh, how to do that test, um, you know, in, in different types of pans, okay? So, you know, have uh, some patience with that process, exercise your curiosity to understand your cooking technology, um, now, at the same time, if you want to use no oil cooking, um, you know, with a nonstick pan, that's fine as well. Uh, I recommend a lower temperature, uh, which means that uh, very often the cooking time will, will be extended because it'll take more time to develop the browning uh, in that nonstick pan at a lower temperature. Okay, but you, you can get there. Okay, uh, again, it takes some practice to understand the particular pan technology that you're using. Okay, but all of them can be used successfully. All right. All righty. Next up from Rebecca. I live at 7,000 feet above sea level. Uh, how will this affect my cooking? Aha. Uh -huh. So, you know, this is a potentially a big discussion. Uh, there are a, a lot of subtleties uh, depending on what it is that's being prepared. Um, I will, you know, briefly explain uh, some of the broad. Uh, things that you might notice. And, and you know, one of those is that, uh, you know, water will boil uh, at a lower temperature. And so, you know, therefore, uh, any cooking that you're doing in, uh, in the way of uh, blanching, uh, parboiling, uh, you know, even simmering, where we do a lot of our cooking, uh, will take longer, okay? Because, um, you know, when you see those bubbles, the actual temperature of the water um, will be a little bit... Uh, uh, lower. Okay. So, um, and that's because there's less atmospheric pressure, right, to hold those bubbles in. And so they're released more easily through the water. Okay. Now, having said that, uh, if we look at baking, for example, uh, gases that are produced from the leavening agent, whether it's a chemical leavener or from yeast, uh, they will be released with less resistance. And so leavening occurs faster uh, at higher elevations. And so, um, you know, adjustments would need to be made if you're baking, okay? Uh, a, uh, you know, having said that, a pressure cooker uh, is, you know, used with success by many people at, at high elevation for, uh, for a lot of different cooking applications. And uh, hello, Emma. Uh, can you explain the difference between flavor and taste? Many of my assignments seem to make a distinction, and I want to make sure uh, I explain my assignments in full detail. Uh, yes, um, you know, in uh, you know many of our assignments and uh, in all of our pro assignments, uh, we request uh, that students start um, you know considering their food at a deeper, more nuanced level, and we ask for uh, you know, descriptions, uh, commentary. Uh, on taste and flavor. And uh, taste, uh, broadly speaking, you know, touches upon these um, areas in the mouth, uh, such as uh, sweet, sour, there's bitter, and uh, saltiness, um, umami, uh, astringency, I also include uh, on this list, as well as the pungency that we associate with uh, hot, spicy foods, such as ginger or chilies. 
Okay. Uh, now, some of this is culturally mitigated. All right. So here uh, in the United States, uh, we will emphasize the first five items that I mentioned where astringency and pungency are not typically considered uh, on the list of tastes. Um, but in other parts of the world, uh, they are considered very important aspects of the finished dish. And uh, uh, I include them as well uh, in my cooking and my discussion of taste. Okay. Uh, when we look at uh, flavor, okay, flavor is um, basically one side of the coin, so to speak, along with aroma. And so, uh, you know, flavor is said to be made up of uh, our uh, aroma uh, or, you know, aromatic experience uh, to the right. extent of maybe 75 or 80 percent. And um, so, uh, in other words, if, if you were to uh, plug your nose and taste food, right, a lot of that food uh, interest goes away um, because, you know, we, we've cut off the, um, uh, the incoming data, right, the, the sensations through the, the olfactory bulb. And so uh, that's going to be the basic difference, okay? The taste uh, kind of touches upon these basic uh, maybe I shouldn't say basic, but but fewer categories, whether it's five or seven, however you want to look at it. Uh, whereas uh, tastes um, number in the thousands, and uh, so there's also practice, right, that is involved uh, in developing your focus on taste or flavor, and to start to understand what it is that you're experiencing. And, um, you know, a, a, a fun way to do that is um, to eat foods blindfolded, all right? And um, uh, you will also see how important our sight is uh, in recognizing the flavor of a food, all right? But uh, it takes practice, takes repetition, uh, it takes uh, a lot of thought, uh, and discussion as well. So if you can have conversations about food with your dining partners, um, that goes a long way in helping you understand what it is that you are perceiving. Uh, very often we are, are tasting something and it's very enjoyable, but we don't have vocabulary for it. So therefore, uh, having discussions with people uh, that uh, maybe are farther down that path, so to speak, than, than we are, uh, will help us um, acquire vocabulary, identify aromas or you know, these combinations uh, of, of tastes and, and uh, flavors and aromas that we're experiencing, okay? And so this too uh, is a long process. Uh, it's, it's a transition, right, to uh, a deeper level of, of understanding of food. So please uh, have patience and understand that it, it might take you the rest of your life uh, to understand more and more. All right. Thank you. All right, Margaret, uh, I'm starting the FOK culinary course and beginning to learn how to use good sharp knives, such as my new chef's knife. Uh, can you recommend the best kind of cutting board to use? Um, yes, let's talk a bit about cutting boards. And, and I'll start off by uh, talking about uh, uh, cutting boards that I stay away from. And uh, those are 
surfaces that are particularly hard. And a couple of examples that come to mind that I have seen um, recently are glass cutting boards uh, and stainless steel cutting boards, which, um, uh, you know, would, relatively speaking, dull your cutting edge prematurely. And uh, so I don't uh, use those. I prefer uh, a natural fiber or even plastic. I use, uh, you know, various cutting boards in those categories. And... Uh, you know, whether it's bamboo or mahogany or something else. Uh, I'm not a stickler about that. I know that some people are. And you can read a lot of discussions online uh, where people split hairs about the relative hardness of uh, a particular bamboo over white oak or, or something else, um, maple or, or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, you know, again, if, you know, if, uh, you, you can make that choice based upon those deeper discussions. Um, um, but I just recommend staying away from these particularly hard surfaces and then you should be fine. Okay, thank you. All right, next up. Uh, in FOK, we are learning to use a chef's knife. My knife set includes a tomato serrated knife. When doing activity 35, dicing ingredients practice, I used a chef's knife. Now, what advantage, if any, is there using a chef's knife over a tomato knife? Uh, you know, the advantage for me is the simplicity of using a single knife. And, um, you know, I don't need to uh, bring out more than one knife necessarily and, and use, you know, switch between knives and then clean multiple knives. And, um, you know, at home, that's not perhaps uh, so critical. Uh, my background is in, uh, in part in, in uh, professional kitchens where um, speed is of the essence and time is always short. And uh, so we used, we learned to use a single knife. We learned to keep it sharp so that it cuts through tomato skin and, and all that. And uh, so that's the advantage that I see. Uh, in using a single knife for most of the work that you do. There are certainly uh, situations where uh, I would elect to, sh to, to change knives, um, and those are going to be usually more specific tasks uh, where my chef's knife um, isn't uh, perhaps the best choice. All right. But, uh, you know, again, uh, if you prefer to use your serrated tomato knife, you know, feel free to, to, to do that. Thank you. All right, uh, again from Christopher, great. Uh, can I cook out of my own home kitchen if I started uh, an online food delivery business? If not, where? Um, so if we're talking about a business um, and cooking for the public, then all of your local jurisdiction laws will apply, okay? And, uh, you know, generally speaking, you've got uh, the uh, health guidelines that may be uh, mandated by your county. Uh, it could be at a municipal level. Um, you know, we also around here have some guidelines from the state level. Uh, it, it depends on the aspect of, of cooking. Um, but uh, the, the bottom line is that the, the cooking environment, right, the kitchen, um, uh, in my experience, cannot be your home kitchen. Uh, it must be what we call an inspected kitchen, inspected by a health inspector, 
that comes from your local government um, uh, offices. Okay, and so you'll need to take a look at uh, what is required in your locality. All right, thank you. And uh, next up, another one from Christopher. Uh, should I open a cooking business as an LLC in case any person gets sick with my food and sues me? Uh, well, this is an interesting question, and this is a legal question, and uh, certainly goes uh, you know, beyond uh, the usual scope of uh, cooking uh, that we focus on here. And uh, certainly this gets to be a nuanced question. And um, uh, around the law and strategies uh, around the law. And um, uh, there could be some tax implications as well. Uh, so you might talk to both a, uh, an attorney as well as your accountant. All right, thank you. And the next question, uh, I wanna learn how to make more vegan and plant-based foods uh, that have flavor uh, and great taste for health reasons. Uh, what seasonings and flavors can I use uh, other than garlic, onions, and any hot spicy seasonings? Um, okay, well, uh, you know, let me begin by saying that, uh, you know, as you move through one of our courses, uh, you will learn task by task or unit by unit uh, how to control the development of flavor. That is really at the core, right, of uh, satisfying cooking. And some of that involves uh, cooking methods. Some of it involves ancillary techniques that you might apply. Uh, and some of it certainly involves the ingredients that you choose. Uh, and that also can become complex in terms of how we combine, you know, how and when we combine ingredients. Um, so, uh, you know, as you enroll in one of our courses, uh, please have patience uh, as this process will build upon itself as you move from unit to unit. And uh, it's going to be also uh, very important uh, and up to you uh, that you practice each of those techniques or flavor development aspects that are introduced over and over again uh, to better understand how the tastes and flavors and other techniques uh, combine to create a certain outcome, uh, and then begin to experiment uh, in areas that interest you, right? Uh, in, uh, omitting an ingredient, introducing a new ingredient, introducing three new ingredients, uh, and so on and so forth. And then uh, let your curiosity take you around the globe, okay, to uh, experiment with and learn about global cuisine. Okay, there is, uh, you know, a whole world of fresh herbs, uh, a whole world of spices, uh, for example, um, uh, you know, not to mention the cooking methods and, and other techniques that are involved in the kitchen work that we do. Okay, uh, so that is my response for you. All right, so this is a lifelong endeavor. Uh, it's ultimately going to be all up to you once you learn those uh, foundational points from us. All right. Thank you. And uh, another question from uh, Audi. Uh, I'm on task 43, steaming of FOK. Uh, is there a time chart for steaming vegetables? And uh, no, uh, we don't, uh, as far as I can recall, have a steaming chart for vegetables. And 
you know, what comes to mind for me are the, the variables, okay? You know, just uh, what it is that you've chosen to steam, uh, as well as the maturity of the item uh, that you are going to steam. Um, and also, you know, how you have prepared it in terms of the size of the individual pieces. You know, part of, uh, you know, what we hope that you walk away with um, after a Ruby experience um, is the confidence in controlling, you know, applying and controlling cooking methods. And, uh, you know, steaming, of course, is one of those. And, and to that end, um, you know, I encourage students to um, perhaps look at a chart as a very general reference, but otherwise to move away from charts um, so that, uh, you know, you understand what ingredients that you're dealing with and the cookware and, and all those other nuances of your particular environment uh, that will affect the outcome of the food. Okay. And that is the beauty of cooking. Um, when we provide a recipe, for example, uh, in my opinion, a recipe is a suggestion. Okay. And, uh, you know, in, at the end of the day, you get to control the recipe rather than the recipe controlling you uh, in your outcome. So we need to, along the way of learning to cook, uh, we need to really understand the nuances of steaming, uh, sautéing, right, sweating, grilling, all of these uh, cooking methods, so that when you see that in a recipe, um, you know, understanding and appreciating that the ingredients that you might have in your refrigerator will be a little bit different based upon the time of the year, based upon the place of origin of the food item, uh, based upon the maturity of the food item, its relative toughness, um, and, and all those other variables that go into these natural items that we use uh, when cooking, okay? And ultimately, you will have control uh, over all of these variables. That's, that's our desire. That's our objective uh, in the way that we approach cooking uh, with a focus on methods and techniques rather than recipes, okay? Um, and so that's my short answer uh, in response to your question about a steaming chart. Thank you. All right, uh, next up from Pilar. Uh, what's the best pan for making French omelets? Uh, you know, typically I would uh, uh, use myself and steer somebody toward a non-stick pan. Uh, and probably, you know, something in, in the neighborhood of uh, a six or seven inch diameter pan. Um, but again, it depends a little bit on uh, just the portion size that you want, okay, and, and how you might be serving uh, that particular item, okay. But a, a nonstick pan is, uh, is great, in my opinion. It's a very, very convenient. Um, some folks don't like to use nonstick pans, and I respect that as well, uh, in which case um, you probably want to use some sort of a fat as a lubricant um, to help, uh, you know, uh, minimize or avoid the, the sticking, right, that is so common with egg cookery. Now, having said that, I'll add one more thought, uh, and this is that, uh, in my opinion, a non-stick pan is a disposable item. I, I never suggest, I'd never encourage anyone to spend a lot of money on a non-stick pan because over time they do accumulate micro-scratches making the pan uh, 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 sort of sticky, right, over time. 
and at some point it will need to be replaced. Okay, and uh, so therefore, you know, spend reasonably, um, but no need to buy some fancy pants nonstick pan okay, for that reason. All right, I hope that's helpful. Thank you. All right, uh, next up from Linda. Uh, kimchi is really good for you. Is there any way to pick up or change the flavor of kimchi? It has an acquired taste. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it certainly does, right? You know, as so many of these fermented foods do. Um, and, you know, you know, having said that, I mean, some kimchis have, um, uh, you know, almost uh, uh, very, very little uh, fermentation on them. And so they have a very mild flavor, but that, um, you know, is to say that there are many different types of kimchi. And um, if you take a look out into the, the broader world of kimchi on uh, the interwebs, uh, you're going to come across these many different styles with, um, you know, some discussion on how you might uh, swap in or out an ingredient uh, that uh, is, a, is an aromatic or a flavoring ingredient. All right, looks like Austrin's back. Howdy. Uh, yes, long time no see. And let's see, I was wondering, how do I approach mastering food? Um, by that, I mean creating my own plates from prior knowledge. Do I focus um, on international favorites or choose a specific region or both? Um, wow, um, Austrin, I love your questions. They're always huge. And um, if we can sit down one of these days over a meal, I think we'd have a, a beautiful discussion. Um, but I'll keep it brief here, okay? And say that um, it, it takes time, and, um, but you can certainly speed up that process, right? By doing a lot of eating, uh, you know, just experiential eating of different cuisines. And I always take a global approach, but even at the global level, you got to drill down to regions. And, and just kind of play in that region for a while before you, you go somewhere else for your travels, right? And um, so do that. Uh, and then uh, bring that home and do some cooking. Try to replicate those dishes. Um, pick up a, a favorite cookbook of that same region and uh, do some other things so that you start to understand the cooking methods, um, which on the surface might look the same as we do in a North American context, um, but can have some, uh, some differences in the way that it's, uh, it, it's carried out at a nuanced level in that particular cuisine, okay? And then uh, to the extent that it's possible, uh, work with cooks and chefs from those particular areas of the world that you happen to be studying, okay? And, you know, when I say cooks and chefs, I mean uh, home cooks, you know, established, confident home cooks, uh, as well as pros uh, in restaurants. And um, uh, you can, as, uh, yeah, I suppose even, uh, you know, in the U.S. where, where I'm based, um, you know, I uh, seek those people occasionally. And certainly when I'm traveling outside of the U.S., I will seek those people. Um you know, understand that um, uh, so much of the food we see in restaurants uh, have very direct origins in home cooking. Uh, and so that's why I like to, to spend time with home cooks um, that have um, a lot of experience. And uh, then I can understand better the roots uh, of those dishes that I see in restaurants. Okay, so that's one way um, you know, 
to uh, to go down this path of, of mastering, so to speak, uh, food, right? Just understanding food at a, a deeper level, okay? And making more and more connections uh, across this context uh, of, of food and society, which is all about people, okay? Also study history and all the other social aspects of food along the way, all right? Have fun with it. It's gonna. It's a, it's a. It's a beautiful life path ahead of you. All right. Thank you. And uh, let's see. Next up, uh, how many days can I store pasta dough with eggs in the fridge? Um, you know, I suggest using pasta dough, most any pasta dough, within a day or so, if possible. Okay, and if you uh, start to get much beyond a day, you're going to start to see these dark spots develop. Um, the, at that point, the dough is still edible, uh, but visually, it's maybe not so attractive. Okay, uh, I mean, otherwise, in terms of having a more perishable ingredient like eggs, um, you know, think about other leftover foods in the fridge, where my general guideline is a week. Okay, and then I'm really taking a closer look at that item as to its viability. Uh, some things certainly will last much longer than a week, while other things might uh, be ideal in, uh, uh, say, five days. Okay, uh, so that's my approach to uh, pasta dough with eggs in it. Try to use it up pretty quickly. Otherwise, keep an eye on it, understanding that uh, visually it might not be quite as attractive as on day one, but uh, certainly. Uh, edible. Thank you. And uh, next up from Delma, uh, what substitute can I use in place of umami for the umami activity? Task 111. Uh, I have a <clears throat> soy allergy. I typically use coconut aminos at home as substitute. However, I know the taste is not the same because the coconut aminos is more, uh, is sweeter than the tamari or the soy sauce. Okay. So task 11 here is in uh, the Forks Over Knives course. And uh, this is the assignment where you're adding things to rice, right? And then paying attention to how the tastes and flavors change with these layers of ingredients, right? We're, we're layering tastes and flavors. And that's um, at, the, at the basis of um, developing umami in a dish. Now, let me, let me say that... Um, very often, uh, especially from like like an American context, which is often very grounded in in science, uh, the discussion around umami immediately goes to uh, MSG, right? Monosodium glutamate or glutamates uh, that are naturally occurring in foods, uh, and indeed that is uh, an important component to the umami experience. Um, but uh, from a different angle, from a Japanese uh, a cultural uh, perspective, uh, and this is where the concept of umami emerged, um, you know, we're talking uh, more broadly about, or maybe more simply, about the layering of flavors, uh, creating a more complex and delicious aspect to the dish that you're preparing, okay? And so that's what Task 111 is aiming uh, at, all right? And uh, so here, uh, if you have um, uh, an allergy to one of the components, take a look at the other suggestions that are presented in the task. Uh, there's a, a list of several other things that you might choose from. 
whether it's sauteed mushrooms or um, uh, nutritional yeast. There are also some linked uh, in informational items in the right-hand sidebar uh, that will provide some other context for you, okay? Um, but give that a try, and uh, you can certainly, uh, you know, put together, you know, another ingredient or two for this particular task activity. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, do we really need to add salt while poaching an egg? Uh, why, when I poach an egg, does some white stick uh, to the pan? Uh, so question number one, do we really need to add salt? No, you don't. Uh, salt is added to the water as a seasoning. Um, but you don't have to add it. It's certainly optional. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the, the, I guess, mitigating reasons for why you might not add salt is, uh, you know, perhaps your, 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 uh, your guest, right, or the diners um, might have a health concern around sodium intake. Um, or perhaps you provide other uh, flavoring components to the dish or maybe or uh, you know maybe condiments on the table, um, you know that would um, provide saltiness or other uh, points of interest on the palate. Um, so uh, anyway, it's optional. Okay, and then the second part of your question: Why do egg whites stick? Um, you know, proteins tend to stick whether they're in eggs or meat or, or somewhere else, and uh, so it's just. Uh, kind of a nature of that component of food, in my experience, chemically, I don't know, but uh, culinarily, that's what happens. And so when a, an egg, um, uh, you know, is placed into the poaching medium, we give it a little bit of time to, uh, to set up, to coagulate on the surface. And then, you know, I recommend going in with a, uh, usually a rubber spatula works very well. You can also do it with a, a large metal spoon uh, or some other utensil, but just very gently loosen it up again along the surface of the pan um, so that it can finish its cooking process without um, being stuck to the bottom of the pan. Okay. Um, and I, you should have no problems moving forward. Thank you. All right. Uh, Laura. Uh, thank you so much for regularly hosting this very helpful Q&A live event and for putting so much effort in answering clearly and thoroughly all of our questions. Uh, Laura, it's my ple uh, pleasure. And uh, I want to thank you as well uh, and everybody else here, right, for your participation. Uh, and I also want to thank you, Laura, for asking all the questions that you do uh, in the course, right, through the Q&A function. Those are uh, also uh, fun to think about and address. They get me pacing back and forth in my office here. Uh, and also, uh, you know, just uh, referring to things that I haven't referred to perhaps in a while. So uh, I really appreciate your sense of curiosity uh, and your level of participation. And again, I want to thank everybody here for, uh, for uh, taking the time uh, to join me today and for participating at the, at the level that you do, whether it's by asking a question or just by listening intently. All right. Thank you, Laura. Uh, let's see. Next up, uh, I am interested in plant-based nutrition and starting the plant cooking course. Uh, how difficult it would be for a person who is only cooking at home. Uh, what's the best topic to start? Um, so, uh, Larissa, our, our courses are um, uh, 
for the most part designed for the home cook. I think I think certainly the a course that you're looking at um, is going to be designed for the home cook. Um, you know, in terms of the that that depth of cooking or that um, uh, you know the the uh, maybe the intensity of the instructor feedback will differ a little bit between say the forks over knives course which is a more introductory course versus the professional plant-based certification course, okay? Where we do expect a little bit more engagement from the students. Our feedback is a little bit more in depth, a little bit more critical at times, okay? Um, that's gonna be true of, uh, of our pro courses, generally speaking, okay? Um, be, and the basic differentiation there is that with our pro courses, we have a, a lot of students that have some sort of a professional aspiration. And so we want to start to bridge that gap um, between your typical home cooking uh, and what you might find in a restaurant. Even if a person has never, doesn't intend to um, cook in a restaurant, that's the way our pro courses are designed. And so, you know, we, uh, we notch it up a little bit, okay? Now, uh, having said that, uh, it should be no problem uh, for a home cook to uh, enroll in one of our pro courses, in this case, the pro plant course uh, that you're inquiring about. Um, you know, but do understand uh, that we hope uh, and to some degree expect uh, that you will sort of dig in and, um, you know, do the best that you can. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, uh, prepare for each task and, and lesson to the extent that you feel it's necessary to do so. Uh, and then we will provide feedback accordingly. Okay. And that feedback, of course, is for, is, uh, for your learning benefit. And uh, so keep an open mind uh, as you move through any of our courses. Okay. And uh, what's the best topic to, uh, to start with? Um, you know, our courses are designed in a sequential manner. Um, designed in a way that uh, makes sense from a learning perspective. And so we provide the more basic foundational components early in the course, and then we drill down into more details as you move through the course, as well as more complex um, aspects of cooking as you move through the course, okay? So uh, ideally, from our perspective, you would start with task number one, and you would just move on through one by one. All right, thank you. All right, uh, next up from Melia. Uh, is it realistic for one knife to properly chop large cube and also small pieces of vegetables? Uh, it seems like most experienced chefs talk about their one knife. Um, you know, the quick answer is yes. Um, you know, very often we'll have our go-to chef knife that will do uh, most of our work. Um, but some of this, you know, it also is, uh, again, culturally mitigated. And, and you've heard me say this a couple of times already today. Um, you know, as we look at, um, uh, you know, prof in this case, professional cooking approaches around the world, uh, you're going to find some, uh, some places where, chefs and and uh, and cooks you know up and coming cooks uh are taught to use more than one sh uh, uh knife um uh, depending on what the task is and um so there there's more than one approach 
Okay. And, you know, I'm thinking about the Japanese kitchen when I say that, where there tends to be a more nuanced approach to knife choice uh, than there is in a North American kitchen, for example. Okay. Um, with a lot of crossover. I mean, there's a lot of uh, blended information these days. Okay. So those statements are, are very general statements. All right. Um, but uh, for home cooking, uh, you know, where uh, you, you can certainly do a, a, the majority of your cooking with one knife. Okay. Um, but like the earlier question we heard today around a serrated tomato knife, you know, for whatever reason, you might choose to use a specialty knife for something else. Okay. Um, now, let me provide some other context here, just some things to keep in mind to kind of uh, be aware of or be careful of. Uh, and, and that is, for example, uh, if your uh, chosen sort of go-to knife is a thinner bladed, lighter weight knife, um, be careful when you cut harder, right? More dense items. Uh, where uh, the chipping of the blade becomes uh, a, a higher probability, okay? And so that is an example of where you might choose to use a couple of different knives, a heavier, you know, thicker bladed knife for dense items, uh, winter squash or, or particular root vegetables uh, come to mind uh, versus a thinner, lighter weight knife for bell peppers and Napa cabbage and so many other things that you might process uh, in greater volume uh, on most days, okay? But of course, part of this depends upon your type of cooking, okay? And what sort of uh, fruits and vegetables uh, you will handle predominantly, okay? Uh, and so uh, think about that and uh, understand that, um, you know, having one knife will get you through most of the work. Uh, having a couple of knives might be necessary in some cases. Thank you. And it uh, looks like the last question here from Juanita. Uh, in lesson 35 of FOK uh, Ultimate, uh, what is meant by perpendicular cut? Can you please describe uh, perpendicular cut? Um, well, um, so perpendicular means 90 degrees. And so Fundamentally, okay, if, if we have an, an item that's flat on the cutting board, um, we want to, if we want to make nice cubes, right, or square edges, then we need to bring down the knife perpendicular or at a 90 degree angle to the cutting board, all right? Uh, if you're at a different angle, more or less, then you will cut a bunch of trapezoids and not um, you know, square edged, uh, cuts, which is our target, right? That's the ideal. Okay. And we're practicing to that ideal in order to develop our knife skills as far as we can, as far as we practically want to do that, especially in a home kitchen situation. Okay. Um, so we're aiming high, understanding that reality might settle down somewhere in here, okay? Um, so that's what we mean, okay, by, you know, aim for or try to make perpendicular cuts, all right? Hopefully that's helpful. Thank you. 
And that uh, closes today's list of questions and brings to conclusion my office hours. And again, I want to thank all of you for joining me and I look forward to seeing you again. Uh, you know, in the meantime, I wish you all the joys of cooking. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.